Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. This is, as we've promised our uh, listeners, spooky month. It's October. <laughs> it's your. It's the most uh, wonderful time of the year for mm-hmm. Carrie. Mm-hmm. Real Andy Williams month around here. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we promised our listeners last week a topic that um, we've been, you know, talking about doing, a topic we've always known we were going to cover and that you've been gearing up to cover for, um, you know, the better part of a year now, basically. <laughs> so um, what are we what are we talking about in this extra spooky edition of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie? Well, we've been promising this series basically since the beginning of the podcast, and now I finally get to tell you all about one of my most passionate pet subjects, the Salem Witch Trials. Ooh. Ah. Because what is spookier than witches? They're pretty spooky. Mm -hmm. I've particularly been interested in the trials for a long time, from first hearing about them in elementary school, to doing a history project on them in middle school, And then in high school, I first read The Crucible, uh, a play based on the trials, and I also got to portray one of my newly found favorite villainous characters, Abigail Williams, and that kind of kept it in my brain. Uh, Once I hit college and, and after that and sort of relaxed more into my authentic weird self, that interest returned. You? Weird? yes. And uh, at that point, I even ended up going on one of my first girls' weekend trips to Salem uh, and and visited it. I I think I had gone when I was younger, but this time I actually was able to see everything and remember everything. And how many times have you been to Salem at this point? We we go at least once a year. So many times. Um, In the last several years, I've basically downloaded to my brain as much info about Uh, the trials that I could from books, documentaries, podcasts, and from like, I don't know, a dozen or more trips back to Salem. (laughs) My real love of the subject came from visiting the place where it all happened, which I think is a good segue into introducing our sponsor for these two episodes, thingstodoinsalem.com. Hit me. Everyone's going to hear more about things to do in Salem during our ad break, but we wanted to give them a special shout out here because it's really the perfect time of year to visit if you're on the East Coast and craving a 24-7 Halloween atmosphere. Oh my God, yes. If you're vaxxed and relaxed, get out there uh, because it's a pretty unique thing to see. The town is a mob scene, but not in a way where I'm like, don't go. There's no reservation. It's a fun mob. It's a fun mob. Everybody, a lot of people are in costumes. Uh, Everybody is, uh, it's just full speed ahead Halloween, uh, 24 hours a day. Yeah, there's... 12 hours a day. Things close pretty early in Salem. (laughs) There's really nothing like visiting Salem during Halloween season. And that's where Things to Do in Salem comes in to help you plan your trip from dawn to dusk and beyond. Slightly beyond. <laughs> Ghost tours go beyond. Ghost tours. A couple bars. Yeah. I actually have had the pleasure of getting to know the site's owner, Elise, and she's just fabulous and really knowledgeable about the area. I actually stumbled upon the site while planning some of my first weekend trips there years ago, and only later was able to actually meet her and become friends. And here at Ain't It Scary, we really only like spotlighting products and sponsors that we actually love. 
And even now, I find myself referring to the site to find new places to visit in and around Salem, even after years of visits. Yeah, Carrie just had her bachelorette weekend (laughs) up in Salem, Mm -hmm. and um, once again, an invaluable resource, right? Absolutely. And hopefully after these episodes, you'll find myself, you'll find yourself like me, wanting to visit Salem and experience the area yourself. And if you do, and I highly recommend you do, Definitely use things to do in Salem.com to plan your trip. Now, the Salem Witch Trials. Let's go back to colonial times, but post Jamestown cannibal times, to set the stage for the deadliest mass hysteria in American history. Oh, I thought once the cannibalism was over, it would just be smooth sailing in the U.S. from then on. No, 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 no. Just to preface, by the way, uh, the Salem witch trials were not the first witch trials in America. They were actually kind of close to the last, right? Because of how extreme everything got, it kind of shook people out of continuing this tradition. The first ones, though not as famous, were in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh! Yeah, and started in 1647 and then continued until 1663. There you go, Massachusetts. Anything you can do, we can do better. (laughs) And first. And longer. Uh, This was known as the Connecticut Witch Trials. Yes, of course we'll do future episodes on them. But Salem's trials were the deadliest, almost doubling the amount of executions Connecticut had during their 16 years of trials in just a year and change. For the next two episodes, I'm going to heavily reference the book A Storm of Witchcraft by Emerson W. Baker, who I just love. Because as Sean knows, I just have, I have favorite scholars and forensic pathologists. She's, she's sexy like that. (laughs) And Baker is one of, one of my favorite scholars. Um, I first heard him on the excellent Aaron Mankey show, Unobscured, discussing the trials and had to pick up his book after hearing his interview. Because I feel like his research provides some of the best context for the trials that I've ever heard. A context that I don't think gets referenced enough when dissecting the trials themselves. Uh, you mean in terms of like what what was actually behind all this? What were the, what were the root kind of social causes of all this uh, madness? Yeah. Uh, a Storm of Witchcraft analyzes how a host of elements combined to erupt into the witch trials, and that it wasn't just one thing, but rather a perfect storm, hence the title, that mixed together to make the atmosphere right for the hysteria. So let's talk about some of those elements. First, we have the Puritans. The Puritan movement began in England in the latter half of the 16th century as a direct response to Henry VIII creating the Church of England so he could get divorced from his wife and marry Anne Boleyn. You might remember that. Yeah, the Puritans were like, you're taking it in the wrong direction. (laughs) We think the Catholics aren't strict enough. Yeah, so that decision by Henry led to a lot of unexpected repercussions, and one of those ended up being the Salem Witch Trials. As you've probably heard in, I don't know, elementary school history (laughs) class, the first town in Massachusetts uh, was Plymouth, as in Plymouth Rock, and it was originally settled in 1620 by the Mayflower Pilgrims. The Pilgrims were Puritans, but they were the first group of separatist Puritans to leave England determined to complete the work of the Protestant Reformation, and they were tough. And they were, yeah, they were fleeing England to find 
religious liberty, by which I mean the liberty to oppress other people with their religion. Yeah. For the pilgrims, it wasn't all buckled hats and buckled shoes and turkey with the Native Americans. Although there was plenty of the first so two So many things. buckles. <laughs> they were very intense. They believed all people were born as sinners into a life of depravity and that only God's mercy would determine who would make it to heaven. And this is known as predestination. This is unlike other Christian offshoots, which usually believe that good works could get you to heaven, you know, if you do good things during your life. The Puritans started at, nope, there's nothing you can do. Your whole life has been laid out since before the world was even created. You've been predestined for heaven or hell. That's not like... It's not great business to tell people <laughs> no. that because then what's your, uh, your, there's no like incentive to. Uh, it's very strange. It seems strange to me. No incentive to make good choices. Your, your, your uh, lot has already been cast. Yeah. The pilgrims were just the toughest of these Puritan groups because they wanted to fully cut themselves off from the Church of England. While most Puritans ended up adapting and saying that though the church could be saved, the best way for them to help do so was to leave England and reform the church in America. And then, what, in a couple hundred years, religious war or something? <laughs> it's the plan. It's like a long game. With Massachusetts' origins so intertwined with religion, it really set the stage for complications later, and not much later. Early on, Governor John Winthrop proclaimed that Massachusetts shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So they clearly felt like they had a lot to live up to. And you might remember uh, Ronald Reagan kind of referencing this when he wants America to America be. America was the city on, on the yes. hill. To Reagan, yes. So, you know, all that religious stuff, it always gets brought up again and again and again. Massachusetts found early profit in the fur trade and cod fishing off of the bay, and Boston became New England's economic center early on in the settling of colonial America. Salem itself was incorporated in 1629 and began its life as a fishing town, basically an offshoot of Boston that benefited from its seaside location. And this is what would become known as Salem Town, right? As opposed to Salem Village? And <laughs> we'll get into that. This is like the whole general area. It just started off as Salem. The name of Salem came from the Hebrew term Shalom, which means peace. Oh, I thought it was short for Jerusalem. I, I believe in this, I mean, Salem, you know, I think it means peace because of Jerusalem. Like, it's, it's all like, like a cycle. Jeru Jerusalem probably. Probably, You're thinking of Salem's know. Lot, I yeah, think. But Jerusalem probably means something peace anyway yes, or something Yes, exactly. Like that. Um, this is specifically yes, meant to mean peace. Because the, the vampire town in Salem's Lot is apostrophe Salem's yes, Lot. Yes, Jerusalem's Lot. Um, this is specifically meant to mean peace because the founder of Salem basically gave up power in Salem and like left peacefully and helped found Rhode Island, I think. So... The word peace, you know, it's named after that, that he didn't put up a fight or whatever. By 1662, Puritan ministers and other leaders determined that church attendance and, you know, things like that were in decline. So they developed something called the Halfway Covenant. Now, this gets into the weeds of religious doctrine and seems so specific as to almost be dumb, but it's important to the context of this story. 
The halfway covenant was basically a partial form of church membership for adults who had been baptized by church-going parents as children, but had not yet experienced saving faith. Basically, what we plan to do with our kids, which is baptize them and then be like, all right, whatever you want to do. They hadn't really been attending church and things like that. Sure. If these churchgoers agreed to live by the church's creed, these members would be allowed to have their children baptized in the church and would be able to take communion, which was very important. Many congregations refused to adopt the halfway covenant, seeing it as too wishy-washy and not hardline enough about church law. Again, these were Puritans. Right. There was also but a, the central Puritan church is go, is going like, or this like the the higher up Puritans. It's are really going a like, divide. Let's do this halfway thing, and the other ones are the ones out in the provinces or out in the colonies are going no. It's almost like when the Catholic Church started doing masses in English or whatever language instead of Latin, so people could actually understand it. People were in an uproar about that too. There's a big difference between the halfway covenant and. I don't know, regular covenant. <laughs> to be accepted in the regular church, you had to do confession in front of everyone in attendance. Basically, the, the nightmare of any child going through CCD. <laughs> like, I feel like when we were doing communion or whatever, it's like, oh, God, everyone's going to know. And I, and I told a fib to my sister. <laughs> exactly. The halfway covenanters, however, would simply practice confession in private with just their minister. You know, like, not horrifically embarrassing. They sound like they're, they're still pretty religious, but these people don't go to church? They do. No, they do. But um, it's amended what they have to do to get into the church and then the confession and all of that. The fight over the halfway covenant eventually would become a church versus church battle in local politics, and none represented the battle more so than the churches of Salem Town and Salem Village and their differing stances on the halfway covenant. So here comes the confusing names. When, yeah. when did it split into a town and a village? Yeah. So just so you know, the village opposed the halfway covenant. They wanted regular church and the wealthier town adopted it. Many people kind of lump Salem Town and Village together nowadays, along with the nearby populations, all under this umbrella of Salem. However, there were very distinct divides, not to mention a wide area of real estate we're talking about. And tension, right? I mean, tension between the two groups, bordering on enmity. Absolutely. Salem Village was kind of a hamlet of Salem Town, but economically it was completely different. The area that was Salem Village is actually a whole different town today. It was like, I can't emphasize how much land this covered. The town today is known as Danvers, while the area of Salem Town has remained as present day Salem, period. <laughs> Some towns like Marblehead and Beverly were originally founded as the village expanded and pockets of residents decided they wanted to break completely with Salem Town. This was important because as independent towns, they would now be able to collect local taxes and build their own churches, while those in the village were directly tied to the town's authority. Oh, so there was, like, in Salem Village, there wasn't a local government structure. They had to kind of go to the town for all that stuff? Government, no. It was, it was all Salem. 
Residents of the village in the 1600s were mostly poor farmers, while the residents of the town were centered more in the prosperous port area of what has come to be known as Salem, generally, and thus were mostly wealthy merchants. This is the kind of class disparity you can see in basically any city or town today. Take Bridgeport, for example, where we live. Bridgeport is the butt of many jokes about how rough its inner city is. It's even referenced on Family Guy. But where you and I, Sean, are now, closer to the North End um, and the surrounding towns and colleges. Near the border of Fairfield and Trumbull, near, yes. near Sacred Heart University. Okay, let's not narrow it down too much for everyone. But it doesn't feel like the stereotype at all. The town where I grew up didn't have as stark as a compare didn't have as stark a comparison, but I did attend the more middle class high school in the average suburban part of town, while the other high school was known as the rich high school, closer to the beaches, with many more of the students living in mansions than not. If you're talking about an area bigger than, say, a Martha's Vineyard, Chances are there are going to be more differences in class in that area than are usually accounted for by those unfamiliar with the population. Right. So, yeah, outsiders would lump everybody into the same group. There's yes. people living literally all different walks of life. Mm -hmm. Miles and miles apart. Even in Salem Village alone, there was division. There was kind of like this middle of a Venn diagram area closer to Salem Town, near what was at the time called Ipswich Road, where those that basically made up the Salem middle class lived. Carpenters, blacksmiths, innkeepers, people like that. Tradesmen. Yes. They were more likely to support the changes the town was trying to make religiously, like the Halfway Covenant. Yeah, because Puritanism sucked and less of it <laughs> is nice. Right. They also... Um, were more likely to support Salem Town economically because they benefited more from those changes in a tangible way. The farmers of the village who lived further from this kind of main hub area tended to stay stricter about their Puritan values and believed that those in the town threatened those values, while they also began to resent the town for its authority over them and responsibilities like the taxes and serving in the Salem Town militia. Oh, because if you were in the village, you would you would have to go serve in the militia mm -hmm. at, at a certain point. Basically, if you're in Salem Village, you're part of Salem Town. Legally. In 1666, Salem Village petitioned for its independence, but for some reason, Salem Town was like, yeah, no. They probably didn't want to lose the taxpayers because this was like the biggest amount of people that they would have lost. It kind of reminds me of in our Watcher episode where the, that association in Wethersfield, New mm -hmm. Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, they refused to let that family divide that home's lot into two, even though they had done it before for other people. Right. So it's kind of that sort of situation of like well, just that, petty. That seemed like it was more about, yeah, petty grievance, yes. where if anything, the town in that case benefits from letting them split the lot, you would think. Right. Just the idea of denying it, even though they had let, these other towns leave, or they had let these other people divide their lots, you know. The petitioners took their frustrations all the way to Boston, and though they weren't granted independence, they were released from certain duties, like serving in the militia. God, I feel like so many political decisions in the 16 and 1700s were made on the basis of, like, I don't want to hear about this anymore. <laughs> Fine. That, and also, 
there was no separation of church and state. Um, <laughs> there have been calls lately of like, why aren't there prayers in school? And why aren't they learning about Jesus in class? What? Have there? Yeah. From who? Who do you think? <laughs> Evangelicals, mostly. Um, but I can't emphasize how important it is to have a divide between church and state, how remarkable it is that less than 100 years later, we had our founding fathers saying that we needed that because this whole story is about how church and state were so irreparably intertwined that it killed people. The most visible supporters of village independence was the second richest family in the area, the Putnams, who, between three of the family's sons, owned 800 acres of Salem land. Wow. Do we know how many acres total Salem covered? Like, what percentage that is? We don't. We know it would span miles and miles. I think to go from Salem Village to the Salem Town Church was like 12 miles. Okay, so this is a lot of land. It's a lot of land. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. The Putnams didn't like the halfway covenant, despite their relative wealth, and they felt the church should stay more stringent rather than acquiesce to the changing opinions. They were also sick of paying taxes to Salem Town, despite not reaping many of the benefits of living in Salem Town. I have a question. So you, you were required to meet certain re requirements to <laughs> be part of the church, mm -hmm. but you weren't allowed to not be part of the church, right? You could just not go, but you would be looked down upon there wasn't anyone with a gun to your head saying you have to come to church but it was the thing so it wasn't compulsory by law though they wouldn't kill you if you didn't go to church right but it did play in later i'm sure yes people will basically be killed for not going to church in this story mm -hmm. but the porters however this is the first wealthiest family in the area were on the side of salem town and the halfway covenant and they had more than a thousand more acres than the Putnams. So that's... 1,800 plus? Oh, more. Over 2,000. So between them, there are thousands and thousands of acres. And this is all just Salem. The, Putner, the Putnams and the Porters and their economic concerns would become important players in the hysteria to come. The hostilities between Salem Village and Salem Town began to come to a head when Salem Village was finally allowed to build its own meeting house, which they used as a church, and elect its own anti-halfway covenant minister in the 1670s, though they were still not granted independence. But this was seen as a concession to them. You can't do the government stuff, but you guys can do church however you want over there. Sure. Well, not however you want. <laughs> Well, this would be a minister who would not allow the halfway covenant, and they wouldn't be forced to go to a halfway covenant church anymore in Salem Town. Now, Salem Village just could not keep a minister in its church. Um, by the time Reverend Samuel Paris was brought in as minister in 1689, I think this is less than 20 years, the village had already gone through three ministers, and this included George Burroughs. Now, is this because it, like, sucked there, or...? Yeah, pretty much. Um, Burroughs was seen as a choice to try and unite Salem Town and the village leadership, because he was related to the Salem Town minister, but he immediately encountered problems. Um, he lived in a Putnam home, which pissed off the porters so much that they refused to contribute to his salary, 
And after a couple years of this ridiculous back and forth and not getting paid, Burroughs pieced out for Maine. Oh, so people would be petty too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You're living in their house? Yeah. But Burroughs will end up coming back again later, unfortunately for him. We will formally introduce Reverend Samuel Paris and the very beginnings of the Salem Witch Trials hysteria after the break. <gasps> Witches! This series is sponsored by ThingsToDoInSalem.com. After learning all about the Salem Witch Trials during this two-parter, you may find yourself hankering to visit the Witch City and experience Salem for yourself. When planning your trip, your first visit should be thingstodoinsalem.com. Created by Salem expert Elise Grimm, Things to Do in Salem packs all the information you need for the perfect trip to the Witch Capital. Choose your accommodations from a great list of hotels, inns, and Airbnbs, Fill up your itinerary with attractions, shopping, and events. Pick out the perfect restaurants for every meal and book a tour to get you familiar with the area. Heck, you can even plan your wedding if you're so inclined. This year, Things to Do in Salem even has a fall guide for if you're itching to visit before Halloween season is over. The fall guide includes over 10 years of Elise's research in the best Salem has to offer, October events for 2021, a full copy of her workbook, and a discount for a virtual tarot reading. This guide is a whopping 35 pages of trip planning perfection, now available for only $25. Find the guide in the shop section of the site, and listeners of Ain't It Scary can get 10% off either the fall guide or workbook separately by using the code Ain't It Scary at checkout. The promo code is valid until November 1st, 2021, so get in before Halloween is over. Personally, we used things to do in Salem to plan our Salem trips even way before we met Elise, and it's been an invaluable tool in getting the most out of every visit. Make sure you head over to thingstodoinsalem.com today to make your witch city dreams a reality. Welcome back. When last we left you, the stage had been set uh, economic and religious tensions bubbling under the surface between Salem Town and Salem Village, and Caroline had just promised that witchery would be afoot. Mm -hmm. So what do we got, Carrie? Well, after the third minister left, Reverend Samuel Paris was elected as Salem Vill Village's new minister. Fourth time's the charm. <laughs> nope. Paris was a failed plantation owner who had fled his family's property in Barbados after a long series of setbacks. He brought a slave from Barbados, Tichiba, who will become a player in the trials later. Paris attempted to become a wealthy merchant in Boston after this, but it seems he simply wasn't very good at it. However, he did run into relatives of the Putnam family who told him that Salem Village was looking for a minister. It's that old classic saying, those who can't do teach, those who can't teach, minister. <laughs> Though he hadn't yet been ordained, he saw an opportunity for a job he could possibly actually do, and he moved to the village. And he was hired. I, I, shit, I can read from a big book every once a week? Are you kidding me? I know, a, a white man with confidence can do practically anything. He was ordained by the community, and things were great, right? 
Sounds well, sounds like it was. Well, well. Paris was a tough Puritan who denounced the worldly ways and wealth of Salem Town, calling these the influence of the devil. You just came from an all-expenses <laughs> resort in Barbados, my dude. <laughs> this rhetoric further divided the classes within Salem Village and then forced those classes to choose between the ideals of the village or the economic promise of the town. He flat-out refused to let any halfway covenanters into his church, which included refusing baptism and communion to them. Okay, but the whole point of letting the village have their own church was so they could do this strict bullshit over here. And if anybody wants to go halfway covenant their asses, they can go over to the town, right? But again, it's like 12 miles away plus, so... Buy a horse! <laughs> Uh, the porters, who again were closer to those of the town, decided once again that they would refuse to pay the minister's salary or provide firewood, which they controlled. They have like a big timber empire. And Massachusetts in winter is unbearable without firewood and thus heat. Unbearable, like literally impossible to survive. <laughs> That's uh, just about. Actual essential, yeah. I think Paris wrote, or there are stories of him um writing with a quill and ink, and the ink freezing in the bottle. So that's the vibe. In the bottle? Yes. So about this winter. The Salem witch trials occurred during the absolute worst weather of the charmingly termed Little Ice Age, spanning the 16th to 19th centuries. You may remember some other mentions of this horrific time to live on America's East Coast without modern conveniences, because I've previously mentioned it during our Lost Colony of Roanoke and Jamestown cannibalism episodes. Yeah, we basically started, uh, we, by we, I mean Europeans, I guess, <laughs> started settling uh, this area of the world at the worst possible time, like in global history, basically. That they could have been here, yeah. So the stories of Roanoke and Jamestown, they went so well. I'm sure this little ice age won't cause problems that would help lead to the Salem witch trials. That feels like foreshadowing? Yeah, it, it, of course it did, yes. <laughs> the 1680s and 1690s are now known as the Maunder Minimum, a time of extremely cold winters and dry summers. That means not only just plain uncomfortable weather, but devastating crop failures for years on end. So we're not just talking about you need firewood. We're talking about you don't have uh, corn. Yes. And you're probably eating. So there's like a full air of desperation here already hanging out. Any cannibalism? Not that I know of. <laughs> this wasn't the only issue contributing to the storm brewing as Emerson Baker refers to it, leading up to the Salem Witch Trials. At this time, there had also been years of unrest to the north of Salem in areas like Maine between the settlers and the Native Americans. This was initially known as King Philip's War. The natives, understandably, felt their land was being stolen, and the English immigrants, they wanted it. <laughs> yes, this tracks. This all sounds, <laughs> sounds like the story sounds that familiar. I know. Yeah. Peace treaties came and went, including the supposed end of the King Philip's War, but fighting continued on and off for years. The Wabanaki Indians destroyed most English settlements in Maine, and though Salem was not exactly close by, paranoia that the same fate would befall them was very high. I'm sure. Of course, yeah, no, of course, of course it was. 
And because the rigid Puritans saw the Native Americans as a godless people, that fate would be like, well, like Satan taking over your hometown. Godlet, well, not godlet. Different godded, those different no, godded they, people. They were we'll heathens to them. They didn't understand their religion and, and language and anything about them. They didn't care to. Some I saw, I saw one guy walking around with his butt out. What's going on with that? It's weird. Of course, the fear that Satan would take over their town. Probably with his butt out. <laughs> ended up becoming so all-consuming that, in a way, the Salem townsfolk made it happen. Just in a different way than they'd expected. Self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm, classic. So here we are. That's the most basic of context. And now it's about to begin. The Salem witch trials themselves. Sorry, the previous 35 minutes were the most <laughs> basic of context? It really is. Like, there are books about just different aspects of this. Baker writes in his book, quote, Local conflict as well as colony-wide problems led to the witchcraft crisis of 1692. Massachusetts Bay's military failures... Religious tensions and political and legal uncertainties were magnified in Salem Village, a place of endless strife and ministerial troubles. Yet, in the end, what happened at Salem in 1692 hinges largely on two groups, the alleged witches and their accusers. Those accusers first appeared in Reverend Paris's own home. Now, there have been many, many theories beyond just blanket mass hysteria that have been put forward about the why of it all, like ergot poisoning, which you may have heard of. Or in the Arthur Miller play, uh, they, they make um, Abby much older and make her uh, have her, she's had an affair with Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes, yes. Which, The Crucible is excellent. Definitely read it. Go see it. Um, not historically accurate. It is weird that Arthur Miller named that character Daniel Day-Lewis. John Proctor. Right now, I'm not going to go into these theories, but rather how everything began to manifest. I'm going to kind of go through the facts, and in then we'll talk about the theories, uh, probably in part two. So you're coming at this agnostic in the, in the, <laughs> the first run. Yes. Paris's sermons started to become even more fire and brimstone-y than he originally was, probably helped along by his anger and frustration at much of the Salem Village community, who, under the influence of the porters in Salem Town, were refusing him salary and firewood. So, oh, so he's just cranky as hell. Not just the richest family, but now they're getting other people to stop paying him? Well, it's kind of... The way it works is like a like a small committee has to agree... And if the porters, like, they're the wealthiest family. If they're not paying, they don't have the money. So it's like if the government had to, for some reason, raise the debt ceiling every couple <laughs> of years. Like that, yeah. And uh, every now and then, one party or the other would just uh, uh, be a pain in the ass about it to, to mostly just be a pain in the ass. Kind of like that. Something like that, yeah. He was preaching against Satan taking hold of the village and with witchcraft charges being dealt out in nearby towns, and this happened kind of one person here, one person there, it must have seemed like the feared approaching Native American forces it was getting closer and closer to hitting the town itself. It makes complete sense that the first tiny root of the hysteria took hold within his own home, to his horror, 
where tensions were very high because he was probably stomping around all the time, angry about his inkwell ice cube and everyone's cold and cranky. And this wouldn't have, if I know the bare bones of this story correctly, Carrie, it seems to me this wouldn't have, none of this would have happened if Paris himself hadn't brought along some human luggage from Barbados. It's part of it. Like if he hadn't hadn't owned a person. (laughs) Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Don't do that. But um, I feel like the hysteria itself probably would have happened, but we'll get into how Tichiba contributed. So in mid-January 1692, Betty Paris, the reverend's nine-year-old daughter, and her cousin Abigail Williams, age 11, began to be seized by fits described as being beyond the power of epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. And this description comes from Beverly Town Minister John Hale, who kind of came in to, like, check things out. And he was an expert on epilepsy. Minister... Expert on epilepsy, classic. According to Deodat Lawson, Salem Village's minister before Samuel Paris, when he was called in to observe the situation, these fits included the girls making strange noises, contorting into strange positions, crawling around the room, screaming, throwing things, sometimes swearing. How old were these girls? Nine and eleven. Those kind of tracks, then. It tracks with just but this is unacceptable behavior for the typical Puritan girl, especially relatives of the minister. The girls complained of being pricked with pins, but Dr. William Griggs could find no physical issues with the girls when he examined them. The girls also began to have outbursts in the Salem meeting house during sermons. Very bad behavior. But these girls weren't the only ones carrying on in this way, just the first. The behavior began to spread, first to their young friend Anne Putnam Jr., and then to other girls in the village. And yes, it is Anne Putnam Jr. She was named after her mother. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. (laughs) They don't do that anymore. If you want a Carrie Jr., I'm not going to stand in your way. Oh, thank you. At this point, Griggs, Paris, and others began to suspect that maybe... Uh, like the other nearby outbreaks in recent months, these fits could be due to witchcraft. Just like those other nearby outbreaks. (laughs) Exactly. In mid-February, Reverend Paris and his wife left to attend a weekly lecture in a neighboring village, and in their absence, their neighbor Mary Sibley instructed Paris's two slaves, the aforementioned Tichuba and her husband, who is known as John Indian. Um, They're also both called Indians... I, because Indian was just any, like a West Indies. Basically, Islander. like any foreign person that wasn't white. Certainly any native from the New yes. World. Yes, but these, they didn't come from the New World. They probably came from South America. Oh. Maybe Venezuela. Gotcha. So. Um, oh, that's New World, though. South America? I thought that was just North America. I could be wrong. No, New World, because, you know, Europeans hadn't discovered any of it till like, the 14-1500s. Yes. Well, Mary Sibley instructed the slaves to make a witch cake to divine the identity of those tormenting the girls. A witch cake sounds like a delicious Halloween pastry. Yeah, I think it probably, uh, that's the one. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
where you've got some like crumbly cake, but you've also got some pudding and like you throw some gummy worms in there. Oh, like um, a dirt cake. Yes. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. So maybe, maybe it's a different thing. Okay. What's yours? <sighs> Almost as good? It's gross as hell. It's a loaf of rye bread whose dough was mixed with the urine of the afflicted girls before baking, then fed to the family dog. Wait, <laughs> uh, to what possible end? <laughs> also, Poe, come here! Peanut! <laughs> it's very vague as to how this would determine the attackers or what exactly it would do. Maybe they thought it would transfer the fits to the dog, and it was better for the dog to have them than the girls, but it did spur the girls on to accusing Tichiba herself as the one going after them. But... What did the dog do? Do we have a record of what the dog did Nothing. or just that they fed no the reaction. cake? Maybe a little angry that he just ate a piss cake. I don't know. He doesn't know it's a piss <laughs> cake. I'm sure it smelled fascinating. Now, by the way, making a witch cake was an act of magic in itself and super frowned upon. Paris was pissed when he found out about it, chastising Mary Sibley in front of the whole congregation until she begged for forgiveness, which she begrudgingly received. Now, who had taught them how to make a witch cake then? I think Mary either knew how to do it or like knew the components and then Tichiba and John Indian made it. A man in black in the woods taught them the recipe, right? No, it was it was a common known thing, like folk magic. Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. Say no more. <laughs> These are witches. These are all witches. Though common perception is that Tichiba engaged the girls prior to this in her acts of folk magic, like a witch cake, there doesn't seem to be concrete evidence of this. Some places state that she would show them little divining spells here or there, um, things that she retained from the religion of her homeland, but others say that there simply isn't proof of this actually happening, that her showing magic to anyone. As with anything like this, I kind of assume it was somewhere in the middle where she maybe shared some superstitions from home with them. Like, you know, an, e an evil eye protection sign that your mom might show me, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and she's not a slave from Bar South America by way of Barbados. She just grew up in Europe. A few yeah. decades ago, you know what I mean. So, uh, I could see this. I could see this Tichiba bringing over some. Uh, she she has different novel uh, perspective that she's sharing with these girls. It seems unlike portrayed in the play The Crucible, the girls weren't dancing around witchy bonfires and sacrificing chickens with Tichiba before the fits began, or any time after. <laughs> the fits did grow worse in the days after the witch cake incident, both in the Paris household and in surrounding homes where other girls were also becoming similarly hysterical. There's probably a lot of pressure on these girls and a lot of attention on these girls at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Paris convened a group of nearby ministers and other prominent townspeople to discuss the case, and they all came to the conclusion that witchcraft was afoot. And the case at this point, by the way, these girls are just occasionally throwing themselves on the floor and yelling a bunch. They're having violent fits. So for us, it's not like in the modern day, this is not a situation at this point, except that these girls might be brought to a therapist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's therapy in 1692? And then came the first non-Tichiba accusation. 
Anne Putnam Jr. stated that Sarah Good was the one attacking her, attacking her using her specter, which is basically like an invisible spirit that could be sent away from the body to do evil while the body stayed in one place. Like astrally projecting yourself. Yeah, like a, an out-of-body experience where you harass a bunch of children. <laughs> Sarah Good was a homeless woman who frequently begged at the doors of the Salem Village residence, along with her four-year-old daughter, Dorcas Good. Sorry? Dorcas Good. Uh, I think it's a, ver a version of Dorothy. It's very unfortunate. That was a choice. <laughs> Sarah was also loud and belligerent to everyone around her, even those who attempted to help her. Elizabeth Hubbard, another of the girls, also accused Sarah Osborne, a bedridden widow who had caused a scandal in the village by buying the contract of her indentured servant, Alexander Osborne, and marrying him. Oh, saucy. Though many nowadays would find this romance kind of beautiful, um, it did make many people look down upon her, and they became more prone to believing her specter had risen from her weak body to torment the girls in the night. Why? It was a scandalo. But and she also hadn't been to church in quite a while. That you, like that she was bedridden. It's not like they were just then living in sin, you know what I mean? Or, or I honestly don't know. She bought him out to marry him. It's a scandal. It's wow. <laughs> Legal proceedings against Tichuba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne began in Salem Town on February 29th with legal complaints being sworn in under the watchful eyes of magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne. Now, Bo uh, both bona fide pieces of shit that we'll see a lot in this story from here on out. Now, since Titula's testimony here becomes... Tichuba. Since TT's... What did I say? Titula. Like oh. Dracula. Titula. <laughs> now, since Tichuba's testimony becomes so important here, I think it's really important to get into the headspace of being her and being interrogated about this by your owner. Oh, yeah. We'll get there for sure when we, uh, when we get to the interrogation. So Corwin and Hawthorne, um, they're known today as judges, but they didn't have an ounce of actual legal training between them. They just had an interest in the law and respect on their names. That's what, that's what it took to be a judge back then? Basically a local judge, yeah, because they weren't like the Boston judges, you know. I think I might run next year. <laughs> I think it's different now. Arrest warrants were issued for the three women, and they were brought to Ingersoll's Ordinary, a tavern, the next morning for questioning. The crowd was so large that the whole crew had to move down the road to the meeting house, which could contain more people. Oh my god, it's Lindley Street in uh, 1977. <laughs> Here, the four girls confronted the accused women, and the trials themselves really began. I'm going to discuss the first hearing before we break for part two next week, because even I think it would be a little too cruel to leave you all on that kind of cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need to find out what happens, at least here. The women were interrogated one by one over the span of a week, and must have been worn down by the exhaustion and stress of the circumstances. Do you know what these interrogations looked like? I mean, is there torture involved? Is it one person or more? It's intense questioning. Um, so Sarah Good was questioned first, and she was relentlessly grilled by Hawthorne doing his best bad cop impression. And keep in mind, the accusing girls are there, and they're having fits still. And then basically, most of both towns are there. 
That's a lot of people. You want to talk about that public confession from before. Some questions Hawthorne asked good included, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? Have you made no contact with the devil? And why do you hurt these children? Well, that seems like a leading question, that last one. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess his mind was made up. It's just a great trait for a judge to have. Well, he was only interested in the law, <laughs> to be fair. Good denied it all, but the girls kept accusing her, and their presence and hysterics pushed the questioning along past any uncertainty in the audience. Mm-hmm. They claimed Good's specter was attacking them right in the courtroom. Uh, remember, the specter was invisible to anyone else aside from the afflicted. But they said they could see it. <laughs> yeah, it's oh, very, very, convenient. very convenient. So dramatic. And the girls would freak out every time Good tried to defend herself. Eventually, Good broke down and accused Sarah Osborne of being the real instigator and likely trying to throw the spotlight on someone else after days of mental and emotional torture. Near the end of her testimony, her husband, William Good, or in this case, a William Bad, was called for questioning and told the judges that he was afraid that she was either a witch or would become one quickly, and that, quote, she is an enemy to all good. What, you ask about my freaking wife? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say she's a witch. She wouldn't, she wouldn't leave me alone when I was trying to watch the freaking game. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they had a good relationship. Um... He threw his own wife under the bus, and he wouldn't be the last person to do that. My favorite Disney villain is my freaking wife. (laughs) I hate those shirts at Disney. We saw that shirt at Disney World so much. The court decided that Sarah Good would be held for trial. Remember, this is just an interrogation slash hearing. It's all very wishy-washy. Osborne's questioning went kind of weirdly. Remember, this is an ill woman who is also tainted with the scandal of falling in love with her servant. But, like, not infidelity or any of the sins. No. Hawthorne questioned Osborne similarly to how he did good, with a lot of accusations and probing questions. I wouldn't say he's doing good. (laughs) Eventually, Osborne stated that she was more likely to be bewitched than to be a witch. This gave the court pause, and they asked her to explain what she meant by this. Osborne then went into a rambling description of a dream or night terror she once had, where, quote, she was frighted one time in her sleep and either saw or dreamed that she saw a thing like an Indian, all black, which did pinch her in the neck and pulled her by the back part of her head to the door of the house. Okay, is this the Mothman? (laughs) She then went on that she'd heard a voice that told her she should not attend the Sabbath services anymore. And though she fought back, it was true that she hadn't been seen at the meeting house since this approximate time for the span of a year and change. Aren't you glad we live in a time when... Well, I don't know. Are are you glad or are you a little sad that we live in a time when uh, no one's court testimony has to do with... Um, you know, <laughs> sending your spirit out or, or oh, going as a glad. werewolf into hell and fighting Satan. Or... I know. I'm very glad, though. If I was in Salem Witch trial times, I would be dead on arrival. She's like, I, don't, I won't plead the fifth, Your Honor. I will tell you I had a dream or vision in which many <laughs> spirits did attack me. Now, Osborne didn't go to church because she was bedridden. 
but the whole story made it all much more weird and confusing to everyone listening. Right, like, just go with, I'm in a chair, dude, I can't go to church, but instead she uh, she starts in on this. I think she started having, like, a mental breakdown. Though the evidence against Osborne was less compelling, the girls acted about the same in reaction to her testimony, and she was also held for trial. Were they dragged straight in from home, or had they been in the Salem jail, Salem village jail? No, they weren't in jail at this point yet. They would be awaiting trial, though. I'm sure we'll describe the Salem Village Jail next week, but um, not pleasant for those awaiting trial. No, not good. Next came Tichiba's interrogation. She initially denied the claims against her of witchcraft and tormenting the girls, but Hawthorne kept pressing harder and harder until she eventually cracked under the pressure and confessed to being a witch. She went deeper into the story at the judge's encouragement, testifying that, quote, I saw a thing like a man and he told me to serve him. A.K.A. she met Satan, maybe? Yeah, or her boss slash owner. (laughs) She agreed that Good and Osborne were the ones responsible, as well as three mysterious people from Boston who she couldn't name. She stated imps were sent by Satan to aid his cruel acts and force her to attack the girls until she finally relented and did so, though she did apologize to the audience, saying, I am very sorry for it. This is a person, this is a life where you've been kidnapped from your home at presumably a young age, um, raised doing not backbreaking labor. She sounds like she's a house slave, right? Tichiba. She's yeah, she's not probably. doing like uh, uh, plantation work or anything in Barbados. Well, I don't know what she was doing in Barbados. Probably the same thing. Because he took her over from there. Um, but still, uh, you are owned by... A piece of shit. A real piece of shit. And you, your whole life since then, since you were kidnapped from your home thousands of miles away, years and years ago... Slavery. It's all slavery. All you know is that if you don't want to be beaten slash beaten to death, you just do whatever is expected of you and whatever you're told. Yeah. And so here's Tichaba, and there's a bunch of white people in the room, including her, again, boss slash owner. And the girls accusing her, Abigail and Betty, she said she loved. She probably nannied them, took care of them. And all of them are screaming at her, you're a witch, just admit it. Mm Mm-hmm. I would want to get out of trouble, too. When Tichiba finally confessed, the girls quieted, their fits rendered peaceful for a moment. It seemed to add credence to the confession, their seeming approval, confirming that she indeed had performed witchcraft, but regretted it. And that's something I want to ask you, Carrie. These girls already seem so remarkably well coordinated, you know, in their act or or their lie or their prank, their mm-hmm. fun prank. Mm-hmm. Um, Just keep in mind, they're fairly coordinated, but there could be one of them starting and then the rest go. You know, there was a lot of that, like Abigail would collapse and then the rest of the girls would collapse. You know, it wasn't like they were doing bits. But even that casts Abigail as someone who is consciously trying to get her friends and and neighbors killed. I don't think she was at this point. I'll go into what I think the motivations were. Um, And keep in mind, she was a child. Nine, yeah. Eleven was Abigail. Uh, Betty Betty was nine. I think eleven. Honestly, I think eleven is old enough to understand that this is real bad behavior. 
I think that was part of the point, but we'll get there. Um, we have to remember, as you said, Sean, uh, that Tichiba's testimony, though it did help increase the hysteria that was already building, we can't hold her responsible for it. Um, she was a slave. She was used to being beaten and tortured for every transgression. In the court documents, they refer to slaves, which I think were just Tichiba and John Indian, as it or that, never he, she, or they. Uh, question about that, though. Do they just do that for all people or maybe no. all women? Because No, just the slaves. Okay, because I remember the line from The Crucible where uh, oh, it Daniel is... Day-Lewis does go, It is a whore, sir! <laughs> yes. Well, I think that was to... I dehumanize think, her. Dehumanize her, yeah. Because um, that's not about Tichiba, obviously. That's about Abigail. Yeah. And from her origins and probably south america uh spirituality was very much seen as real and her religion and this puritan religion full of demons and imps and witches it wasn't so different that she couldn't relate to the concepts in kind of a related way enslaved people in the islands uh, and then you know who later brought um their beliefs over to the u.s over to north america they incorporated Catholicism and, and the saints and things like that because it's not that different. And so all these different African um, kind of animistic, spiritualistic religions got kind of combined with Catholicism and with the saints, the idea of the saints. And um, the saints got kind of combined in with a lot of those spirits and gods. And uh, yeah, it's all kind of a mishmash of, of basically everything you've seen throughout your life, you know. I mean, just think of communion. What What's it? Transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. The idea that communion is literally Jesus's body. That's a Catholic specific thing, but yes. But like, that's magic. Yes. Oh, the Catholics <laughs> are full of magic. Yeah. Like, that's magic. There's a lot of Christian stuff here that is magic. Um, so it doesn't seem that foreign to Tichiba. She was trying to save her life and spare herself from abuse because she knew it was coming. And though her stories helped drive the beginning of the trials, I don't think we can blame her for it. Tichiba was emerging as the star witness, and she testified deliriously for another few days, telling the judges that she signed Satan's book with her own blood, thereby selling her soul to him, and had seen Good and Osborne's signatures in the book as well. It's so standard operating procedure for witch trials as as i've learned like this is this had been going on in europe for over a hundred years right but it's crazy how they always drive them into that same story and people always end up you know if you slap them around enough people go like yeah there was a man in black in the woods and i wrote his my name in a book the girls were also saying a lot of stuff that sounded like communion but like opposite like it was red bread you know like <sighs> It was blood instead of wine. You know, that kind of stuff. It was already blood instead of wine. That's transubstantiation. It's like people talking about black masses and the satanic panic. They just take a mass or a church service or whatever and make it spooky. And th there's a really interesting conversation in... Um, <laughs> there was a man there and he had little glasses and he drank blood and he bit the, he bit the head off a bat. <laughs> That's just Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> There's a really interesting conversation in the podcast Unobscured. Um, now, I would recommend listening to it if you're interested in this because it's like a mini series. I'm trying to combine these into condensing everything into two episodes, but it's a, it's a good coverage of the Salem Witch Trials. And they talk about 
this idea of Satan's book and how it was really impactful for everyone, but also really interesting because women, Puritan women at the time, had a much higher literacy rate than any other group of women in the world, basically. And that was because they had such a strong belief that they needed to be able to read the Bible and be able to read the Bible to the kids. Right. And so even poor children in the village, it would be important to make sure everybody knows how to read because everybody's got to read scripture uh, to the point where they memorize it. And things are being printed now, which they didn't used to be. So there's, there's this big fascination with Satan's book and what does the book look like and all this stuff. And also about signing the book, which women usually couldn't write. They could read, but could not write, but they could make a mark. And that was the important thing. Is it weird that this comes up in early alien abduction stories? Do you remember Betty being shown the like book by the alien abductors and then it was gone when she tried to show people? Yeah, I think it's such a like instinctual thing with us now. Just, I don't know. It's such a part of our culture. I mean, well, less now than it used to be. Well, now we're so legally bound in everything. It feels like you're signing a contract or agreeing to terms and conditions to do anything. Right? And a contract is something that everyone could understand. So, of course, Satan's like, sign my, you know, little guest book of horrors or whatever. If it was now, it would be his terms and conditions yes. for sure. And you would just say yes, just to get it off the screen. It's 42 pages of privacy <laughs> terms, Satan? No, I'm not going to read this. Tichuba's testimony was very compelling. The details corresponded with the girl's accusations, and it contained all of the hallmarks of what was believed to comprise witchcraft at the time. Writing in Satan's book, riding on broomsticks, which, yes, she said she rode on a flying stick with the two Sarahs, uh, which is having specters and these impish familiars that were like little demons but looked like animals. It was all, all that stuff. And of course, she had probably heard all of this stuff because Samuel Paris talked about witchcraft all the time well, and she lived with him. Certainly in every sermon he would have been. And then probably he's stomping around the house uh, raving about witches, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eventually, Tichiba dropped the biggest bombshell of all. She stated there had been nine marks in the book total, which means another six Satan worshippers were hiding in the town, waiting to carry out their terrible deeds. Well, it's a... How many? Nine more? Nine total, six more. It's a, it's a horrible thing to imagine that a total of nine people might lose their lives in these silly, silly witch trials, Carrie. So I, I hope that that doesn't happen. Well, now the Salem witch hunt would truly begin. And that is where we'll pick back up next week with part two of the Salem witch trials. Let's give people something to look forward to? Question mark. Carrie, um, we've got six more. Uh, we've got three witches and then six more coming down the pike. Uh, how many people will be executed as, witch as witches before the witch trials are over in Salem? This isn't the uh, total amount of people who died because several died in prison because they were terrible. And we will talk about that. But 19 men and women were executed because they thought that they were witches. So they blew right past that nine, huh? Right past the nine, right past the 11 of the Connecticut witch trials. It was horrific. It's horrific.
So look forward to that, I guess. Yeah, because, well, uh, up to this point, we've only seen a, some slight injustice and superstition. Uh, the real horror will come next week, so everybody can look forward to that. Yay. Um, any any advice between now and then, Caroline, for our listeners? Um, I don't know. Like, don't marry your servant, I guess. Yeah, it seems pretty applicable. <laughs> Welcome back. As you know, we are putting the news segments on hold for the month of October and letting uh, Halloween horrors take center stage. That's right, listeners. Uh, those sick beats... <laughs> mean that it is time to hear about what spooky things Carrie and I have been watching in the last week because we are trying to, as you know, keep it spooky this October. Hashtag keep it spooky. <laughs> Carrie, what have we been watching? Um, okay, full disclosure, listeners, no new views for us this week and nothing particularly scary either, <laughs> but we did rewatch some family Halloween classics. Carrie, what did we get into? Well, we're going to talk about the Adams Family movies, one and two, and our sneaky decom <coughs> favorite, Under Wraps. Not even sneaky. It's by far... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I should explain for the listener. My wife's the only human who abbreviates Disney Channel original movie true. to decom. She thinks that's a term because that is the, the level of centrality. <laughs> Of the role that those movies play in her life. Yes, I was an only child. Um, we had cable. I had a TV in my room, which kind of subbed in for having a sibling to play with. So they played an important part in uh, my growing up. And Under Wraps was my favorite of them all. I was born in 88. I was the oldest of the three siblings. And so I was like at the exact right age. I was the prime target audience for the first round of disney channel original movies those of, are the ones that don't that really count of which uh under wraps was one yes um so you might not know it it's not as well known as a halloween town say i don't a, a horse sense starring the <laughs> lawrence brothers i don't think it's on disney plus right now and that might be because they just released a remake yes of under wraps we we cannot endorse the remade under wraps we haven't watched it and it looks i saw the trailer it looks like a like a disney channel like sitcom -y kind of goofy the thing about the original under wraps is it feel like the kids feel real they don't feel like these stagey stagey kind of Dylan and Cole Sprouse, uh, Miley Cyrus, kind mm -hmm. of like, aw shucks kind of kids. Like, they're sarcastic, they're funny. Everything for TV is shot digitally now, so why is it that right around that same time, Disney Channel shows started looking cheap like soap operas? I don't Do you know, know what I mean? They have a different camera quality that I don't understand. Yeah. Because everyone's shooting on the same medium. <laughs> it's called, like, data. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, but Under Wraps came in... Before that, it's a story about a group of uh, three kids, and the main character um, 
his mom's divorced. He kind of misses his dad. His name's Marshall, and he's played by what appears to be an 11-year-old Gary Sinise. <laughs> he's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to see my monster movies here. I don't know. What do you fucking want to tell me? He loves monster movies. He doesn't say fuck. He has a, a dweeby friend named Gilbert who's afraid of everything. And um, they go. He's and a guy who's in a lot of movies in the late 90s. Yeah. Kids movies in the late 90s. He yeah, was a he skinny was... kid with glasses and red hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and them and their friend Amy go to sneak into a local kook's house and they find a sarcophagus. And in the sarcophagus is a mummy. Yes. And, of course, they're freaked out. It's a dead body. But uh, because of the moon and some, you know bullshit um the mummy comes to life hijinks ensue basically the old kook who owned the house isn't uh has has faked his own death in order to commit insurance fraud with yeah, all it's the, very like, complicated for a kid's movie with all the antiquities he had in his basement because he was an ex-museum curator question I think mark? he stole them He's, hobby lobby styles that's mr kubat who is a um that's an Egyptian name, but he is a white, a very white actor who you recognize as the villain in many uh, 90s he children's films. He looks like Ed Harris's cousin. Yeah, you know, Egyptian. <laughs> um, and so this mummy comes to life. They're initially afraid, but it turns out this mummy has a heart of gold and is a sweetheart. Um, hijinks ensue. They have to figure out how to get the mummy, who they call Harold, back into his sarcophagus. Because he looks like my Uncle Harold. <laughs> they have to get, figure out how to get this mummy back into a sarcophagus on Halloween night. Which, now that I think of it, did, did the Egyptians even have Halloween? Like, why would that be a thing? No, of course not. <laughs> uh, they they reference the day... I think they say the Day of the Dead, which is also not an Egyptian thing. No. There's a, a Mexican Day of the Dead, not the <laughs> same. Uh, they were like, Day of the Dead, like Halloween? And then the comic book store owner is like, yeah, except when you trick-or-treated, they ate you. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what Egyptian tradition no. they're trying to reference there. But uh, anyway, it's not a historical document. No, it's it's just a good kids movie. The kids are really realistic. They reminded me more of the kids from It than any Disney movies, you know. they're sarcastic. They're sarcastic. They snipe at each other, but they are they also have, like, warm moments. They feel like real kids. They feel like real characters, for yes. sure. They all have very strong kind they of sitcom personalities and arcs, yeah. That they, um... The girl is very... She's the most sassy and sarcastic one in the, in the bunch, and uh, it's very fun. Um, whereas the little boy, again, he's Gary Sinise. He's just like, yeah, what are you doing? Hey, mom, stop kissing me. Hey, oh, I'm a, I'm a dude over here. What are you doing? And then, uh, which is weird on a, an 11-year-old, but what are you going to do? And then uh, you've got the, the nerdy, nervous uh, friend who you need in any movie of like Of course. And, you know, throughout the movie, they're kind of getting to this end goal of getting the mummy back to the sarcophagus. And the main kid, Marshall, uh, really learns how to uh, trust people again, because I think he was really burned by this divorce. And in a fun little twist, um, the mummy is played by the same guy who plays his mom's new boyfriend. And at the beginning of the movie, he's really pushing this guy away. He doesn't like him at all. And, um, he, you know, he's a sweet guy, but he, he's not his dad. And by the end of the movie, he says um, that, you know, basically that he'll accept him and that, you know, people should be with who they love. And it's because he had this really special relationship with his mummy. It's like very emotional. It's like sweet. 
Yeah, and the uh, mummy and the mummy slash mom's boyfriend is uh, Bill Fagerbach or Fager Bakey. He's uh, <laughs> he's the voice of Patrick Starr on SpongeBob SquarePants. Um, and he also plays another Marshall's dad on uh, How I Met Your Mother. He's very tall, so that I think there's like a whole joke about how all of them are very, very tall. Yes. Um, which also works very well for being a mummy. Uh, being a mummy and being a stepdad who Marshall at one point describes as a big clunky guy. <laughs> so um, if you can find this movie, I happen to have it on DVD. It's not... <laughs> my wife is sick. <laughs> it's not in print anymore. I hope they end up putting it on Disney Plus because it's really the only decom that is missing. I think they just don't have it on there because of the crappy new one, the remake. They want people to watch that instead. I hope they do that. If not, um, it's on YouTube. You could probably find it on other places, but highly recommend, especially as a kid's movie that isn't just a, a slog to watch. The, the sweetness of the kind of central message, and the, especially if you know the mummy's played by the new boyfriend of the mom yeah it's like a captain hook yes mr darling sort of thing that's incredibly sweet and then it's also got some really delightful physical fish out of water comedy because the guy who plays the mummy is just funny he's just funny without ever (laughs) using a line i mean the kids are all great actors which again is something you usually don't get in a kid's movie they're good for kids (sighs) and uh yeah so highly recommend um you know what? You've all seen The Addams Family. If you haven't seen The Addams Family, and especially Addams Family Values, uh, you should. They're not crappy movies from the 90s. They're great movies from the 90s. Uh, I think the first one's funnier. The plot uh, takes a weird third act lurch that makes no sense. No pun intended on lurch. Um, weird third act turn that makes no sense, but I think it's almost better for it. You know, taking the long, taking a zoomed out view, you're like... I like that it's weird at the end. Um, <laughs> and we have to shout out Morticia and Gomez Adams. Um, I, uh, they're they're just the best. Um, they're great parents. They love their kids, but they love each other, which is so unusual to see in a kids, I guess, movie. Um, they really love each other, and they 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 be. They'd they be, be doing it. <laughs> They'd be doing it. They'd be fucking. They, they love each <laughs> They be loving each other, but they're also still very into each other. They're not sort of non-sexual beings like so many parents are represented as in movies. Um, it's, it's like, it's like really. Yeah, yeah, but in a sweet way. It's really wholesome in a strange way. It's It's just nice to see. You don't often see that because usually... I don't know. Parents are always like fighting in movies or, you know, the guy's like, oh, my wife. But it's nice to see like Gomez loves Morticia. He's all about Morticia and she's all about Gomez. And it's nice to see. And in the context of each other, everything turns both of them on. Like and that's when, nice. That's nice for them. Like when she's trapped at the end of the first movie and he's <laughs> like, oh, Tish, to see you that way. Uh, lost, alone, in pain. And she goes, later, dear. <laughs> Exactly. Like, like they're experimenting, and I, and I like that for them. Um, so, yeah, definitely watch those. Christina Ricci is featured more in the second one as Wednesday, and the, she's a delight. They knew at that point what they had. I think the yes. first one is, like, her first role, basically. I think so, yeah. Or one of the first and roles. And she's awesome in that she's movie. She's amazing. Um, ugh, icon. Um, but also... Goth, 
queen icon. And uh, Joan Cusack's amazing in that second one as well. It's the only movie where Joan Cusack is sexy. I'm not <laughs> saying that she's not sexy as a person. I, I just Portrayed don't think as sexy. movies never portray her as sexy except for that one. Right. And Christopher Lloyd is psychotic, so it's fun. Um, definitely watch. Uh, my favorites are Gomez and Morticia. I love that relationship. Um Gomez was always what I was aiming for for when I, you know, eventually settled down. And I think I found my Gomez. So thank you, Sean. Oh, dish. <laughs> um, they're also, they are great parents. They're so proud of Pugsley and Wednesday. And they're supportive. They support their interests. Yes, those interests include electrocution, but it's still fun. But in the second movie, they're mortified when Joan Cusack lies to them that Pugsley and Wednesday <laughs> want to go to summer camp. They still support them, But they them, still though. send them because they think it's what their kids want. Yeah. Beautiful. Lovely. Happy Halloween. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Don't forget to screenshot your five-star reviews and share with us on social media for your chance to win a gift straight from us. Yes, no spoilers on what that might be. Uh, it's probably a book. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, things to do in Salem.com. And as always, our beloved patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. See you guys next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> Salem Village itself was kind of a hamlet of... You left the door open. <laughs> Sweet pig. He just wants to be close. He's a good boy. That's a good boy. Come on, let's go upstairs. Come on. Come on. Good so boy. quick. Good boy.